Lord, now help us hear your word. Help me to preach it clearly, faithfully, as you intend. And may it find open hearts and minds here so that we would be shaped and changed, corrected, encouraged, whatever each of us needs. You can do that because it's your word, and we pray that you would for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. How was Christmas? Did you get all that you wanted? All that you needed? Did anybody awkward show up and kind of spoil the party? Don't look at them if they're still with you. Well, they'll go back home soon enough. I wonder if this year you had a hard time loving anybody in your circle in this time that we've set aside for love. Family gatherings can be like that a little bit. We've had some, in my extended family, we've had some some strange times in Texas when we get the whole gang together. And the things that we've agreed as a family never to talk about again, someone brings them up and that icy cold silence descends on the table and eyebrows are arched and elbows are thrown and then somebody awkwardly changes the subject, usually in our family, by talking about the food. Aren't these mashed potatoes great? And everybody says, oh, thank God we're on to a safe topic. And we talk about mashed potatoes for five minutes, glare at the guy who said the uncomfortable thing, and then we're back together, pretending to all love and understand and support each other. The reason I'm asking is today we're going to be in the small book of Jonah in the Bible. It's an undertaught book. It's a short little book, and we're going to join Jonah on his journey away from God. And it doesn't feel like it at first because it's very notable for some miracles that occur in it. Very pointed miracles, very deliberate miracles that God who created the universe is literally marshalling all things, great and small, to teach the prophet a lesson. And the lesson is about love. Because really and truly loving somebody and loving anybody and loving everybody is a tall order. Have you ever caught yourself shrinking down the scope of God's love to include you, but maybe not somebody else? You ever hope or wish or even pray that God would just step in and deal with somebody already? Hope that mercy didn't come, that judgment would come instead? We've all been there, and that's actually what the book of Jonah is about. about. If you'll look in your Bibles with me in the book of Jonah, you're going to find in that minor prophet, you'll need your Bible. If you don't have one with you, you you should find one near you in the seats. There's not going to be any notes on the slides, so just listen to this ancient story. It's about 3,000 years ago. Israel is behaving as Israel almost always behaved terribly. They have a wicked king. They are far from God. But in spite of that, Jonah is mentioned one other place in the Bible aside from the book that bears his name and tells his famous story. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, I read that Jonah is preaching good times, national prosperity, national expansion to wicked people And it's happening. Jonah's a very unusual prophet. He was sent to prophesy to people who were living terribly under a wicked king who were explicitly told is doing everything wrong. 
But in spite of that, God has mercy on his people because they're so crushed by their enemies and he allows them to expand their national territory again, secure their national border. Their land expands back to proportions that were, hadn't been seen probably since the times of Solomon. Now why am I telling you all that? If you're a prophet sent to bad people but you get to tell them that even though they're acting terribly, good times are here again, how do you think he might be received by the people? They get to act any way they want and God still blesses them. Do you think that would be a popular prophet or an unpopular prophet? Jonah's having a pretty good time. And then this happens. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And to hear that word alone would have made Jonah's blood run cold. Nineveh is part of the Assyrian Empire, and then and now the Assyrians are world famous for their cruelty. A few days ago, I had a, a meal with a college student in our church, and we were, I was giving him a preview and asking for him to give me some feedback and some help with what I'm sharing with you now. And he said, yes, one of our professors said, if we ever find anything in the ancient world where a human being is being cut in pieces, that's got to be the Assyrians. That's who they were. They impaled people alive. They skinned people alive. According to one scholar, some of their warriors would like to make a necklace of severed human heads and walk around with the spoils of war draped around them. They were incredibly barbaric. They would make mounds of bodies or mounds of heads. They would send them ahead and pile them outside of cities. It is pure terrorism in the ancient world. Jonah knows all about them. So when he's told from God, I've heard of their evil, I want you to go out and tell them to stop, he makes a surprising decision. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I don't have a map, but all you need to know is he went in the exact opposite direction. He went to what is modern-day Spain, most likely. He went down to Joppa, a port city in Israel to this day. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down in it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now notice, this man is callously disobeying God, but at least he's paying his fare. Okay? He's a disobedient prophet, but he's not a stowaway. He is paying a, his fair share to get away from God. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. This is literally a motley crew. These are all pagans. They all come from different places, serve different gods. Each man calls out to his idol, to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the, sheep, of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Now I want you to see what's happening here. A ship with a capable crew is being at the verge of being torn apart. They've given up all profit and the whole point of their trip by throwing everything overboard in the hope that they will survive the voyage. And Jonah has gone down into the bowels of the ship, the place where he will drown first. And what's he doing? Sleeping. 
That's really interesting. You didn't think a man would be able to sleep in conditions like that. What's actually happening? Have you ever fallen into a deep sleep and had a hard time waking up because you were depressed? I think Jonah's grieving here. I don't think this is a natural sleep. I think this is a man who, as I'm going to show you, knows God probably better than any of us. Knows exactly what God wants. Knows exactly what he's doing to disobey God. And he has, I think, resigned his commission. I don't think for a moment that Jonah actually thought, based on what he's about to say, that he could physically get away from the God who made the land and the sea. What he's done instead is quit. When he's heard that God may have yet some mercy for such awful people, that have been and will be a thorn in the side of his own people, rather than tell them to relent and repent and turn around and stop, I think Jonah resigns his commission and sleeps the sleep of the depressed. So the captain came down and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain is literally calling for all hands on deck. Every man to his own God, maybe one of us will speak to the God who can take care of us. And they said to one another, here's more of their superstition, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and of course the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Anything wrong with what Jonah said? He's dead on. And I want you to see that all through the book. Every time Jonah speaks of God, he's right. There's an important lesson here. We can serve God without having his heart. We can do what God asks. We can use God's words to address people. We can check boxes. We can be very dutiful servants and have a heart that is very unlike the Lord's. Jonah is on this ship because he refuses to believe that the mercy of God should extend to people like the Assyrians. And it's a curious thing, and it's something that we need to watch out for. When Christians understand that what we just celebrated at Christmas is real and true and historic, And that God the Son became a human being to live in our place, live righteously in our place, face our temptations, endure our sufferings, taste even our own physical weakness, and He purposely died to save us so that we could enjoy God forever. Well, that kind of good news can make someone feel pretty special. And if you're not very careful, you'll think that the love of God for you means that he must not have as much love for them. There is always a temptation in all of God's people to shrink down the size and the scope of God's love to include people such as ourselves. Of course he loves us. Look at us. Aren't we wonderful? But those people... They, them, that crowd, those beliefs, those behaviors, those customs, those kinds of choices, no love for them. Verse 10, 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Please enter the story. The storm is getting worse. There's starting to be more water inside the ship than the ship can bear. He says, I know the problem. I'm the problem. Throw me overboard. What is he asking them to do to him? Kill him. He is downhearted. He is discouraged to the point of death. He basically wants their help committing suicide. And the pagans are better than the prophet. Look. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Imagine that. Man overboard and a splash in the middle of the storm and immediately as Jonah goes under for the third time, quiet. What do you think is going to happen on that ship? Well, I'll tell you, revival broke out. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They're having church up there on the deck. They're going to get home with no cargo and no profit, but they're going to be alive, and they have had an encounter with the living God who shows off by controlling all of nature right in front of them because of his wayward prophet who refuses to do what God said, even though he knows better. Verse 17, don't miss the verb. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And here's where some people part company with the story and say that it must be a parable or a moral story made up out of whole cloth to convince people about something. I believe that this is history for several reasons, not least among them is that Jesus knew about Jonah and spoke of him as a historical figure. In fact, when pressed, when Jesus was pressed, for proof of his identity. He said that the proof that would be given to the skeptics would be the sign of the prophet Jonah. That Jesus would be in the tomb for three days and three nights, and then he would rise alive as the prophet once did some 900 years earlier. Yes, this is a miraculous story, but for the God who made heaven and earth and controls the sea, there's nothing to it. And I want you to notice that Jonah has been immediately swallowed up. He has been saved through a brutal trial to be swallowed alive. And he was in the belly of the fish. How long? Look at chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Number one Bible reading tip at Crosspoint is, if you were thrown overboard and as you went through the air, you noticed that a behemoth was swimming in your direction and opening a mouth five stories tall to swallow you whole, when do you think you might start talking to God about it? 
I'm midair, I'm praying. Probably in both languages that I know. See, see which might be more acceptable to the Lord at this point. Little English, little Spanish. I know a little sign language. I would probably be doing all three on the way down calling for help. It took Jonah three days to pray. You ever think about that? A war is being raged inside this fish between a man who refuses to believe is as good as he appears to be and a man who will happily accept his love, accept his commission, will gladly serve him as long as God doesn't say too much. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, you're in charge, God, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. A very Jewish expression to, where Jonah says, I believe that this won't be the end of me. I will yet worship you again in person. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Here's some good teaching for you. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Verse 9 is a monumental truth in this little book. Jonah is saying from the belly of the whale, God, those sailors that threw me into the sea, they serve false idols, and as long as they serve false gods, you will have no love and no mercy for them. They forfeit grace and mercy so long as they cling to their idols, and that's always true. The love of God is broad and deep. It is wider than you can begin to imagine, but so long as people cling to their idols instead... They will not find, as Jonah says here, they will forfeit those who pay regard to vain idols, forsake their hope of steadfast love. There's no hope to experience the faithful love of God if you won't pay attention to Him, if you won't trust Him. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will give sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And here Jonah comes very close in Hebrew to saying something that sounds like the name of Jesus. That it is Yahweh who saves. It is God who saves. Notice, Jonah has not prayed for sailors. He has certainly not prayed for Ninevites. He has only prayed for and about who? Himself. He's grateful to have been saved. But as I'm going to show you, he hasn't learned much. Now, if you have a reference Bible, most Bibles have, probably not the one that's in your pew, but if you have practically any other edition of the Bible, you'll notice if you look in the center column or perhaps on the sides that chapter 2 has a lot of cross-references. And what the editors of the Bible are showing you there is that Jonah's prayer is entirely biblical. As Jonah prays to God when his will finally breaks and he prays after three days in the belly of this fish, 
Everything he says is scriptural. He could be a doctor of theology down there with weeds wrapped around his head, as he said. He's in a miserable state, but his mind is filled with the truth of God. But that's another lesson along the way. We can fill our mind with the truth of God and not have it reach our hearts. And we can become comically tragic figures as Jonah is because knowing everything about God, we can still behave as if we were far from him. The book of Jonah is in the it was, was with, within the canon of Scripture, within the collection of God's sacred writings as a message to Israel itself. If you've read the Old Testament, you'll know that the point of God saving Israel, blessing Israel, giving them their law, blessing them as He had blessed no other nation was to give them from them someday the Savior we just celebrated at Christmas time. And God has always cared about the nations. In the days of Israel, He is trying through holy, merciful, loving, compassionate, godly people. He's trying to create a nation that is so remarkably different and so remarkably better than the surrounding nations that the nations are drawn to Israel. Now, if you've read your Old Testament, how'd they do? Terrible. They were never a, sh a light shining in a dark place because they were always and forever going after the idols of other countries. And here comes the book of Jonah showing this prophet who knows God, who serves God, but would rather resign his commission and use all of his biblical knowledge to think only of himself, not the people he has surprisingly been sent to. Chapter 3, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You may have noticed God isn't negotiating. You ever try to negotiate with God? Tell Him if, you'll, if He'll do this, you'll do the other thing, and we'll kind of meet in the middle. God doesn't negotiate. Nothing has changed. Time has been lost. Horrors have been suffered but God hasn't changed his mind and his plan for the Ninevites. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the Hebrew word's really interesting. It means what it says on the page of your Bible, overthrown or destroyed, but it has a secondary meaning that it can be also taken as changed. In other words, there is a certain promise of judgment, but there is within the threat of judgment, there is also the opportunity for change. And that's exactly what they did. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. In other words, they're going to use ancient customs to publicly portray their grief and their mourning over being far from God. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a publication, a proclamation, and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. How are they doing? It's the most effective sermon you may find in the entire Bible. One man preaches, and if you notice, there's not much to it. You're all dead in 40 days. There's not even a mention of the way out. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Rather than rush him and kill him where he walked, God's word reaches into their heart. Reverent fear grips every one of them. All the way to the king and they proclaim what Bible students call an absolute fast. In other words, no one touches anything, not even water. And in fact, we're going to include our animals. We and everything we own is in mourning until we see what God does with us. If we turn from our evil way, perhaps he will still relent and spare us. What a sermon. I've never preached one like it. I don't think Jesus ever preached one like it. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't. It's the most effective 100% response perhaps in the history of preaching. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was what? Angry. If you have a footnote in your Bible, you may see that that could also be translated literally from Hebrew. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. When Jonah heard that God was going to relent and deal with mercy instead of judgment, he called it evil. He was displeased. It's a Hebrew expression. He's not attributing evil to God. It means that he's very, very upset about it. He is actually angry about it. And here, the strangest prayer perhaps in the whole Bible He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's all true. God is filled with grace. He's filled with mercy. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in faithful love. And Jonah is celebrating it. Is that what's happening? No, he's furious about it. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Wow. This is twice that Jonah has wanted to die. He wanted the sailors to kill him by throwing him into the storm. Now he says, God, this is why I ran away. This is why I quit. I know how you are. You're good. You're faithful. You're merciful. You have more grace than anyone has ever dared believe. This is why I didn't want to tell them. Kill me. I can't take it. First time I can ever find in scripture or in church history where someone has said, God, you're so good, I wish you'd kill me. I can't bear to think of your goodness. Another lesson along the way. The word of God preached by his people 
however rotten their attitude, the Word of God is so powerful and so effective that it can make anyone turn to God and repent and be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Word of God can bring anyone back to God? It's vitally important that we actually believe that. And here's why I believe this book, some 3,000 years old, is contained in our scriptures. It is for such a time as this in 21st century America. Because the Christian church and Christian individuals in particular, including some Christian leaders, seem to be having a very hard time believing that some people actually can be saved. We seem to have a hard time believing that the Word of God can actually change anyone and everyone, regardless of their previous history, regardless of their previous wickedness. I won't bore you with my testimony again, but that's the story of my family. Two generations ago, on both sides, wicked people were flourishing in our family. The men in particular were awful. And God in His grace stepped in and intercepted sin and destruction and alcoholism and violence and all kinds of wickedness. And for three generations now, it's made all the difference in the world. Had you known my great-grandpa Newman in Kansas? You never would have thought that a man like that would ever turn to God. But God ordained circumstances, including the death of another man right in front of him, notorious for his goodness and his godliness. And my grandfather screamed and cursed God and said, why would he take him? He's a good man. And somebody had the courage to tell him, God didn't take you because you're not ready. You'd go straight to judgment. He's in heaven now. That's the sort of proclamation of the Word of God that altered the history of my family. And if we, as 21st century disciples of Jesus, who proclaim His love, who sing about it at Christmas, who rejoice about every good thing that God has done for us, are going to serve His purpose. Now, we have to believe again that the Word of God can save anyone and everyone, including people who may currently hate us. And we dare not return hate with hate. We dare not say that these are the Assyrians and we are the Israelites of old and we'll just hunker down and wait for God to step up, which is what Jonah did. Look, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Your parents ever ask you questions like that? My dad would sometimes say, what do you think you're doing? And honestly, the answer was, in my teenage years, I wasn't really sure what I was doing, but I could parse the question well enough to stop whatever I was doing. God is patiently asking Jonah, should you be this upset? The answer. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. What do you think is happening here? I think Jonah has seen an entire city turn to God. But he's hoping to God that it's not true. So he goes outside the city, makes himself as comfortable as he can so that he can endure sitting there for as long as it takes. And he's hoping against hope that these wicked people will go back to their old ways and he may still live to see the judgment fall on them. God's not done with his prophet. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. God's in charge of everything. Storms, fish, winds, plants. 
Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God had appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Are you picking up a theme with this guy yet? (laughs) He is sitting outside the city hoping he will get to see the destruction of an entire city. The first note of happiness in his life is a a plant, a simple plant that God made grow up around him to make him as comfortable as he could be. With that gone and the sun and the wind beating him and drying him out, he'd rather die. And he says so. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, another probing question. A wise, loving parent dealing with a wayward, hard-headed child. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. See, you can know all of God's Word. Have it fill your whole mind. Not have it reach your heart. You can know all of God's Word and be nothing like Him. Jonah is nothing like Him at this moment. He believes that the Word of God can lead even these wicked people to repent, and rather than celebrate the greatest sermon ever preached, he's angry and prefers God to kill him. And here's the point of the story. Listen, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And the book ends with a question. There's no answer. And no reason to believe that Jonah responded appropriately to that question. There's nothing in his trajectory further and further away from God, even when he's being spared, even when his life is being saved by a miracle, even when he's being greatly used by God to turn notoriously wicked people back to God, even when he can remember the miracle of sailors who tried to save his life, calling out to God and recognizing that Jonah was right about everything. He takes no joy in it whatsoever. Why? Because he has done what we dare not do and has shrunk down the love of God to a size that he's comfortable with. He has decided who God can love. And the thing about God's love is if we get too accustomed to it and misunderstand it, we think that God's great love for us must mean that he doesn't have much love for them, whoever they are to people like us. The question is on the page of Scripture to confront Israel in its time and to confront modern-day disciples of Jesus in our day so that you can answer the question for God. God's question is there are 120,000 people with no moral knowledge. Not only that, there's a lot of animals in that city. Jonah, shouldn't I care? 
And there's no answer because Jonah must be the one to answer. And in 2021, with our divided country, where Christians are more inclined, in some quarters at least, to separate themselves and hunker down and hope for judgment, judgment for others, rescue for self, we need to be the kind of people who step forward and say with God, yes, you're right to care. You cared about me. You sent your son to die for me. He was entombed in a literal crypt for three days and he rose from the dead so that I could have life. I'm now going to step forward and tell people who I have a hard time believing will care or listen. I'm going to tell them about coming judgment and your faithful love to see what you will do, God, because you're in charge, not me. I'll rejoice over the things that bring you joy. I'll grieve over the things that bring you grief. I'll only dare to be angry about the things that anger you. I won't shrink down the size of your love because you love me and I've come to understood that you love them too. Let's pray together. Christian, can I redirect you to the first question I asked you if there's anybody you're currently having a hard time loving? Could you perhaps talk to God about them right now in light of this story? December 26th, I'm sure this is a church service where people who already know God have chosen to come. But if you're not certain of Jesus' love, if you're not certain that He has loved and forgiven you, can I invite you to turn away yourself, to trust Him and be saved? Give up that idolatry. Whatever you've been choosing, whatever you've been living for more than Him, other than Him, give up on it. Trust Him instead. Cross point, we need to be the kind of church that lets the love of God be as broad and deep and vast as God himself says it is. We dare not shrink it because of our prejudice, because of our experience, because of what we think is our superior understanding of what God should do. He's in charge of everything. Everything in this story is minding him except his prophet. Let's answer the question. When God asks, shouldn't I care? Let's say to God, yes, you should, and we do too. Lord Jesus, thank you for gathering your family on this day after Christmas. Thank you for the joy that I've had to open up this ancient story. Help us see ourselves in it and help us all answer the question correctly. When you ask us over people that we may have disrespect, contempt, even growing hatred for, when you ask us, shouldn't I care about them? Let us answer, yes, God, you are good and right to care. And so do we. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that right now they would put their trust in you, Jesus, and that they would experience the same mercy that you give everyone who calls on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Folks, it has been an absolute delight to be part of this church family and navigating through this crazy year. I don't know about you, but I miss precedented times. I'm tired of saying that we're living in unprecedented days. But these hard days have been our finest hour. You've acted more like disciples of Jesus, shown more love, more care, more compassion than I knew we were capable of. Let's keep going. And now, as Jonah, you're commissioned. Because Jesus said to take the good news to every nation, to make disciples and baptize them as we've done today. And he promised that he would be with us every day 
until the end of the age. God bless you. Love you. Happy New Year.